For a perfect day out in California, Chris Baker recommends Palm Springs, where you can take a quick ride from the hot sunny desert to a snow-covered mountaintop. Have your martini by the sunlit pool by day, or go golfing, maybe. Hop on the tram and you can go snowshoeing. Coming up, Chris is back with more ideas for enjoying the variety you'll find in California. The English countryside inspired Frederick Law Olmsted to design public parks that we still admire today across America. Densely wooded, meandering curvilinear paths, typically a burbling watercourse nearby, either real or semi-real at least. Filmmaker Lawrence Cott shares what he's learned about the father of landscape architecture. And we'll look at the delights of Eastern Europe, from festivals to farm towns off the main tourist tracks. There's all these beautiful small towns that are very historic. They have these gorgeous main squares with really colorful townhouses. It's all ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If people could live that long, Frederick Law Olmsted would have turned 200 this year. But his legacy lives on in the hundreds of graceful public parks and recreation areas he designed across North America. We'll celebrate the Olmsted Bicentennial in just a bit with a documentary filmmaker who'll tell us what motivated Olmsted's work as a landscape architect. And we'll share highlights of the fun you can discover visiting the countries of Eastern Europe. That's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. If you'll be in Los Angeles or San Francisco for an event or on business and you have a day to get out and explore, Christopher P. Baker has compiled his best advice for 29 different day trips to try in the Golden State. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about the strategies he shares in his book, Perfect Day, California. Hey, Chris, thanks for being with us. Rick, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Together, we've talked about Cuba, we've talked about Costa Rica, we've talked about motorcycling on the road, and now we're going to be closer to home. We're going to be talking about day trips from Los Angeles or in San Francisco, and you've written this great little book that gives discerning travelers very smart itineraries if they've got a free day in L.A. or San Francisco. And I just want to kind of check in with you and get your advice. So let's just say we're in Los Angeles and we've been there for whatever, but you really carved out one day for being just a sightseer. You got a rental car. The weather's great. Um, What would your favorite options be? Well, I think that's a no-brainer for me since I live in Palm Springs. (laughs) Let's talk about the the place you chose to be a, a, a local. Sure. You know, it's a two-hour drive from um, L.A. You've got options as to the route. You can do a swift two hours on the freeway or maybe take three hours and go over the mountains. Uh But Palm Springs, uh, I love living here, uh, having swapped out from the Bay Area because it offers so much. I mean, firstly, you have this incredible physical setting. Most people think of it as the desert, but I am looking out of my window right now at fresh snow on the mountains um, that rise up to 12,000 feet. One of my favorite things to do is that from the center of Palm Springs itself, you can get on the Palm Springs aerial tram and travel up through five life zones, metaphorically, to the 9,000-foot station at the top of the mountain there, or near the top of the mountain. So you get to have your martini by the sunlit pool by day, or go golfing, maybe, Hop on the tram and you can go snowshoeing. You can golf in the morning, hop on the tram, and you can go snowshoeing in the afternoon. Yeah, you, sure. you I mean, how many places can you do that? That's pretty good. Um, and then well, I gather from reading your book that the top of the tramway is like a, a trailhead for a lot of a lot of hikes, and you've already done the climbing. 
Yeah, yeah, there are plenty of trails from easy, more or less flat hikes. Uh, mm-hmm. One that my favorite one, the Desert View Trail, that leads to spectacular vistas over Palm Springs and the entire Coachella Valley as far as the Salton Sea. So you're looking almost 100 miles to the Summit Trail, which uh, is a serious hike up to the top of uh, Mount San Jacinto. And you've already you gained 8,000 feet the easy way, and then you're already up there and you're ready to enjoy nature. Uh, one thing that I, I didn't appreciate until reading your book was Palm Springs has a kind of a 1930s haunt of the Hollywood stars kind of uh, vibe. Uh, describe that a little bit. Well, it's renowned. I mean, Palm Springs is renowned as really the mecca of modernism. Mm-hmm. And that era of modernism uh, was really associated with the heyday of um, the Hollywood sets. Mm-hmm buying homes there because they were under contract to the studios. They had to be within a two-hour reach. A 100-mile radius was the limit, and Palm Springs is 100 miles from L.A. And, of course, this is the days when their peccadilloes went unreported. There was no such thing as paparazzi. So they really put Palm Springs on the map, and they Ah. bought many of the wonderful modernist homes that can be toured. And so one of the highlight things to do, it's uh, featured in my book, uh, Perfect Day California, as the first of the two highlight things is uh, a tour of the celebrity homes. Mm-hmm. Now, you um, in each of your chapters, the 29 chapters in your book, you have one restaurant that you have chosen. In Palm Springs, you, you chose uh, Cheeky's. What's the deal there? Cheeky's is uh, it's lunch only. Okay. Um, but there's a reason it is one of the most popular venues for dining. No reservations because it has uh, some fabulously creative Fusion breakfast brunches. Uh, it has mm-hmm. an all bacon, various types of bacon breakfast, for example. Can't go uh, wrong. With I am that. not inclined often <laughs> to eat bacon, but uh, that one does it for me. Okay. Well, I, I would, I would particularly trust your restaurant recommendations in the town where you live. So Cheeky's would make the the, the case there. Chris Baker's favorite itinerary ideas for people with limited time are outlined in his book Perfect Day California. Chris has also written Backroads California and Guides to Wine Country, Palm Springs, and the Desert Resorts. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. Now, talk a little more about Los Angeles. Palm Springs, two hours. If you're up for a two-hour drive, that sounds great, especially if you want to ride that tramway and get up to 8,000 feet and take a hike. I really am impressed by Santa Barbara. I had an occasion to give a talk there once, and It's a beautiful drive to get there. It feels like another world from Los Angeles. It's just a little bit north. You call it the American Saint-Tropez with a Spanish colonial vibe. Describe Santa Barbara. What what would you recommend uh, making sure you get the most out of a a side trip to Santa Barbara from L.A.? Sure. I mean, it's a beautiful setting by the uh, ocean there. But um, the, the real core of interest is its Spanish colonial heritage, the architecture. I mean, it is themed to Spanish Renaissance and Spanish colonial architecture. Mm -hmm. Many of the buildings that can be visited on what's called a red tile walking tour, sponsored by the um, local CBB, takes you to the historic buildings that are still there intact and state historic parks that date back from before California was created as an independent state and part of the USA Ah. to the Spanish era, to the Mexican era. You know, I I always think of uh, the gold rush, uh, what, 1848, as kind of a threshold. If there was stuffing there before the gold rush, that really was Mexican, Spanish, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and you have the legacy as well as anywhere, as much as anywhere in California, in Santa Barbara, you have stunning buildings, well-preserved. 
I got to say, I'm spoiled because I'm always going to Europe where you just, you got real history whether you like it or not. There's a lot of places in the United States that are history, but it's totally rebuilt as an economic gimmick or adventure to make some money off of people. But there's honest-to-goodness historic buildings that go back um, 150 years all over California. Sure. And of course, the quintessential building is the mission itself, which is one of the best preserved of California's 21 missions. But one of the other reasons I love Santa Barbara is that on the outskirts, um, you have something totally different. You have the wine country, for example, around, well, Solvang. Let's just back up a little bit. You've got Solvang, uh, which is a Danish village created by Danish immigrants. And it is a Danish themed village that really puts you in Denmark. You would be amazed to find any in California. And right outside uh, is Los Olivos, which is the heartland of the vineyards in the area. This is so cool about your book. I mean, you're going to be in L.A., you got Palm Springs, and you got Santa Barbara. There's plenty to do there to keep you busy for a day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by travel writer Chris Baker for ideas on day tripping in California. In his book, Perfect Day California, he recommends 29 quintessential itineraries for a day from the deserts and the beaches of Southern California to the vineyards and misty redwood forests in the north. We have web links to Chris's work and his earlier visit with us uh, as we've interviewed different places. Uh, Chris, we've been in Costa Rica, we've been in Cuba, we've even motorcycled through Cuba, and of course now we're talking about California. To listen to our interviews or to get the web links to Chris's work, go to ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Chris, we've talked a little bit about L.A. Of course, you got Santa Monica, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Anaheim, Pasadena covered also. I love this idea about Palm Springs and Santa Barbara. Let's go up to San Francisco for a minute. Let's say you got a day out of San Francisco. And let's say you've already done... Uh, the beach walk, and you've already done Sausalito and that sort of thing. Where a little bit further would you go? What would be really rewarding as a day trip from San Francisco? Because I lived in the Bay Area, in Oakland, and I have fond memories 25 years. Um, I think the East Bay often gets uh, short thrift. Yeah, from, um, I travels. Agree. Uh, Let's go a little bit north, because um, 50 miles or so north, you've got, you've, what do you got, Santa Rosa, Napa Valley, Sonoma. Tell me a little bit about the why you listed Sonoma as one of the top 29 sites for a day trip. Well, Sonoma often takes uh, second place to Napa Valley in the popular image, but um, there's so much there from the wonderful wineries associated with that area. Sonoma State Historic Park, we were talking about pre-California architecture. Well, this was a very important Spanish-Mexican venue, and so those buildings are preserved there. You have balloon rides over the vineyards, Hmm. and of course you've got nearby Glen Ellen, which has the Jack London State Historic Park, where Jack London, the novelist, lived. And they preserve uh, where he wrote many of his novels. So you've got that historic base in Sonoma. I think you'd want to spend a night up there if you could. I mean, geez, you got that because Napa Valley is just within striking distance and Santa Rosa. But if you'd like, you could weave together some of that, that old California history, some of the best wineries, and the Redwood Forest, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's plenty of nature up there. And one of my favorite venues, uh, which would be accessed through Santa Rosa, is Armstrong Redwoods State Natural Reserve. I remember camping there in 1978 before I lived lived in California. Fabulous to camp amongst the redwoods. Chris, we've just got a few seconds left, but I was so fascinated interviewing you a while ago about your your passion for motorcycle touring. And uh, I just think there's so much great road tripping in California, I love to hang out with travel writers who really know their stuff. You know California. You love motorcycles. Can you put me on the back of your motorcycle just for a moment 
and share with our listeners where you would drive me to just be mesmerized by the natural wonder of California. Just one place to paint a picture. You're a good travel writer. I think it would probably be Big Sur. Maybe maybe the Redwoods, but Big Sur, that Pacific Coast Highway number one, the sweeping bends oh, and the spectacular vistas. I mean, motorcycling doesn't get any better. Than that. I bet if you see somebody all cooped up in a car with the windows up, you just kind of go, they just don't know what they're missing. Yeah, and even in winter, you know, you just put one more layer on. It's, it's so much fun. Paint the picture. Tell me vividly what we're going to do. We're on that road. It's a beautiful sunny day. I'm just yeah. I think you're there with nature. I mean, how, you cannot get as close to nature in a car. It's just impossible. And so you're really feeling one with your environment as you sweep through the bends and crank up the throttle for you know a, a quick straight blast down the straightway, and then then through the next bend and leaning over. And, yeah. I would just feel like you're gliding, and, and you're you're sort of thankful that it's not a straight road, aren't you? Glad that it's winding. Oh yeah, sure. no, it, that's so it, boring. It, it, <laughs> it echoes the beautiful coastline. There are reasons you buy a motorcycle. This is one of my favorite things about my work. I get to fantasize about enjoying these places with people who really know what they're talking about. Chris, thanks so much, and congratulations on your book, Perfect Day, California. Thanks so much, Rick. We'll explore some of my favorite experiences in Eastern Europe in a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. But first, we'll hear how the man who's called the father of landscape architecture left us with hundreds of remarkable places we can all enjoy today. Whether you go to a park to breathe in the fresh air, admire a garden, take a walk, or meet up with friends, a good park is a great place to gather. It's a place where you can connect with your community while at the same time connect with nature. There's one man at the forefront of so many of America's most iconic green spaces, and he's considered the father of American landscape architecture. That man is Mr. Frederick Law Olmsted. His parks are known for their sweeping landscapes, Greenways and boulevards all set in pastoral and picturesque settings. Chances are you've probably enjoyed one of his parks, too. Joining us now to celebrate the bicentennial of Frederick Law Olmsted, born in 1822, is filmmaker and landscape historian Lawrence Cotton. Lawrence, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure, Rick. It was interesting to me when I was thinking about this whole contribution of Frederick Law Olmsted that there's a a mix of connecting with nature as well as community. He seemed to be, you know, working both together. Absolutely, Rick. As much as he identified himself as a landscape architect and really founder, as you hinted at, founder of the the modern practice in America, he identified himself as a social reformer. And his career was really at the center of the social late 19th century social reform movement in America, and particularly uh, in the Northeast and New York circles and parked for him, his practice of designing and building these urban parks was part of his social reform agenda. Hmm. And indeed, connecting citizens, placemaking, to use a contemporary term, uh, placemaking, although that term wasn't in use back then. Right. <laughs> you know, I bet there's a lot of terms that, that we have today that they didn't have a name for it, but he was tuned into 150 years ago when he was working. Indeed. Garden designer was more typically the term that was in use until Olmsted and his collaborator Calvert Vox came on the scene. They really started together with Central Park, and that's when the term landscape architect began to be uh, okay. come into parlance. Uh, it, it didn't even really exist before then. You know, we are, we're so blessed with beautiful nature here in the Northwest, and it's just been an ongoing dynamic, kind of a, 
I guess you could say, a conflict between developers and people who believe in the value of green spaces for the common good. How was that conflict or dynamic uh, part of his whole um, concerns and, and challenges 150 years ago? Well, on the one hand, he was ahead of the curve. Well, keep in mind, most American large cities were still at very much in the nascent phase of becoming big cities, if you will. Certainly, New York had already become that when he entered the scene at Central Park in 1857. The older Northeast cities, of course, were certainly urban environments, but they were still growing. So when they planned Central Park, that was at the edge of urban New York. It was farmland hmm. in the outer outskirts of today's Central Park at that point uh, in Manhattan. So time-wise, things were rather different. He was able to plan, work with cities in New York, Boston, Buffalo, uh, Louisville, and elsewhere to get ahead of urban development. He actually worked in particular, Buffalo is one of the perhaps most noted examples where he's often pointed to as one of America's first urban planners. Again, before that term existed, by the way. Right. He worked with uh, city elected officials and uh, business leaders in Buffalo to really plan the future growth of Buffalo around this masterful integrated park system that he designed there. And that was, in fact, Buffalo is distinct because it's the first integrated park system in America, all connected by parkways mm. and traffic circles. And that model became the model for the rest of the nation after after that accomplishment in Buffalo, including, by the way, his own son, John Charles, doing much the same thing in Seattle. You know, it's so interesting that you have a window of time as for a growing city where you can grab that opportunity and establish land as public land, green spaces. And if you're asleep at the wheel, that gets developed. You can never really get it back. And then you look at it 100 years later and you go, weren't we fortunate, weren't we prescient or whatever to see that opportunity and take it because it makes our city much more livable. Absolutely. And and here's the thing. Uh, Olmsted did have that kind of vision. Uh, there's a, a famous quote where he, he, he never would consider any of his projects coming to anywhere near fruition until a minimum of 40 years into the future. And I, I'm paraphrasing mm. that quote of his, but it, it doesn't take too much of experiencing his masterful parks or reading his voluminous writings to realize, Rick, that he, in fact, did have vision 100 or 200 years into the future. He did have that kind of vision. And he shared that with the powers that be in these great cities. The, mm. Again, the, the elected officials, the civic leaders, and philanthropic leaders, and he convinced them to plan that way and to create these magnificent parks, which he knew would serve well into the future when these cities would see f huge exponential growth into the future, as was the case. You know, that's almost, to me, integral to leadership, is to be able to rise above the, the common masses need to get it done now or to have a short vision and to see that something that's going to be enjoyed by future generations we can do right now, and it's a slam-dunk good investment. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this. As I often say that he was the one of the earliest proponents of forest bathing. Yeah. Uh, which is much in the vogue now, the modern version of which comes to us from Japan. Uh, but I, I would put it to you that people like Henry David Thoreau, who was an acquaintance of Olmsted's, and Olmsted were early proponents of uh, forest bathing. I was reading his quote. Let me, let me just read the quote. We want a ground to which people may easily go after their day's work is done and where they may stroll for an hour, seeing, hearing, and feeling nothing of the bustle and jar of the streets where they shall be close to nature and, in effect, find the city put far away from them. That's forced bathing in 1870. 
Absolutely. And if I can actually even add to that an additional quote, which gets into what I would call Nature Rx, which is now also a growing movement in America and Canada and elsewhere. I'm going to quote, this is the shorter version of a longer quote from Olmsted. The enjoyment of natural scenery employs the mind without fatigue and yet exercises it, tranquilizes it, and yet enlivens it. And thus, through the influence of the mind over the body, gives the effect of refreshing rest and the reinvigoration to the whole system, unquote. You know, Lawrence, it's so interesting because my girlfriend and I are planning our second one-week-long hike in the Alps, and we're still marveling at being just in nature for a week, exercising, giving our brains something, a total break from all of the stress and pressure that comes with our daily work. It's good for our health, and and we just really value it. That Nature Rx thing is something that... Uh, you don't need to get in a plane to enjoy. I was just up in Bellingham here in Washington State where they brag that they've got more green space than otherwise within their city limits. It's something the city really values, and it's recognized now as something that's good for public health. And, Rick, let's think about what we've come through during these last couple of years, if I can add a couple of other elements. We've had this terrible pandemic. We're still coming out of the end of it. You yourself have had to deal with it so much in your own professional life uh, and in your industry. Uh, We've had social and environmental justice movements coming to the fore at the same time, just prior to and during the pandemic, and public parks and public green space and civic infrastructure where there is some green space where people can gather either in isolates for solace with nature or in groups. These are not amenities. They're essential, essential aspects of our civil and civic infrastructure. And it's become ever more so apparent during the last couple of years. It's so important that we recognize that. And it does come with that dynamic of people who want to develop stuff and and make money right now. That's one great thing about getting together and and, uh, raising awareness of of the value of the futuristic um, wisdom and the work of Frederick Law Olmsted. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by landscape historian and filmmaker Lawrence Cotton right now. Lawrence has taken us through some of America's most iconic parks, all designed by the father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted. 2022 marks Olmsted's 200th birthday. So I want to talk about some specifics on his parks here in a moment, Lawrence, but before we do, can you just review the philosophy of the father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted? What was his philosophy that was the bedrock of the things that he designed? Well, there are several ways to slice that. Uh, one would be his aesthetic and design philosophy when it comes to actually designing public spaces and public parks, which has to do, and you you yourself already hinted at it in your wonderful introduction, he was influenced by the English naturalistic garden design movement profoundly, but also by writers in England and in America. And uh, we could mention some of those designers in England, such as Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton and writers like John Ruskin and other mm-hmm. individuals, William Gilpin, Uvedale Price. But here in America, Andrew Jackson Downing as well, who was so instrumental. He was also influenced by the transcendentalists, in particular Ralph Waldo Emerson's On Nature. And he had a, uh, a friendship with individuals such as Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. I, I dare say they influenced Olmsted more than he influenced them. All that writing about naturalistic garden design refers to the sublime, the pastoral, Mm -hmm. and the picturesque, Mm -hmm. as well as the Hudson River School uh, movement of uh, painting here in America. All of those elements, those aesthetic elements are always combined. Uh, In my public programs, I often say, well, it's kind of hard to recreate the sublime in the middle of an urban, dense urban environment. 
you mentioned you're going off to hike in the Alps. Of course, that is the sublime in Europe. The English Lake Country would be the sublime as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but here, here in America, the sublime, of course, is Niagara Falls. And back in the 19th century, it was the Catskills and the Adirondacks. Mm. You can't do that, but you can certainly, through some artful movement of earth... Uh, and plantings of trees. Mm -hmm. uh, you can certainly recreate a pastoral or a meadow-like environment and a picturesque environment. A picturesque is typically the ramble in Central Park is more often than not pointed to, you know, the, the right. birding hotspot of Central Park. Right. Densely wooded, meandering curvilinear paths, typically a burbling watercourse nearby, ah. e either real or semi-real at ah, least. It's great. And, and the whole idea is there is you, you go in a transition uh, zone in these masterful parks from the pastoral to the sunlit open expanse meadow to these meandering wooded glens for sort of inspiration uh, with nature one-on-one, -on -one, if you will. It's a mini Walden Pond experience uh, in an urban environment. And you have always have these combinations in all of the Olmsted masterworks. When we think of these parks, I just love the idea of the, of the social democracy that was woven into his landscape design. Absolutely. And actually, there's very new scholarship that is even underlined. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is Olmsted wrote very descriptive details about the institution of slavery in the South in the prelude to the Civil War in the f early pages of the New York Times. And he was a uh, the director of the U.S. Sanitary Commission during the Civil War. And there's evidence that shows that his creation of Central Park was a testament to the need for civic space and for civil space in the North in the outcome of the Civil War, that the nation needed a new example, a shining light, where everyone could come together regardless of creed, race, religious belief, huh. class, where everyone could assemble huh. and enjoy the relief of nature. And to him, that was a fundamental aspect of all of his public park designs. He saw public parks, not just Central Park, all of his parks, as places where America could continue the enactment of democracy. You know, we have a, a boulevard where people stroll along the waterfront in my town, and it's a great equalizer. It doesn't matter how the, the rich people have their nice few properties right next to it, but this is where everybody gets together, everybody, and they're welcome, and uh, I think it's important for the social fabric of our community. Absolutely, and public parks play that role very much so today, no question. To recognize that is, is so, so important to to promote that idea so people can prioritize when it comes to the budgeting. I mean, you know, a, a city's budget, a state's budget is a moral document. What do you really care about? And this is part of the social fabric of our community. That's right. And public parks are, as I hinted at earlier, as I, as I stressed earlier, they're not amenities. They're essential right. to our urban infrastructure and our suburban infrastructure. Now, there's something that you mentioned really, really fun about how a design like Central Park in New York can be like theatrical or a sort of symphonic almost. Mm -hmm. Talk about how Olmsted was um, mindful of that. Indeed. In our film is Elizabeth Barlow Rogers, who is the f a very well-known figure, the founder of the Central Park Conservancy, and who is a, an Olmsted scholar in her own right. She describes Central Park as a, quote, symphonic sequence of beautiful spaces, unquote. And it is so perfect because if you spend time, immerse yourself in these parks, and by the way, another great park in New York I do want to call attention to is Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Hmm. And if you spend time in any of these great parks across the country, there is a certain theatricality to it and a, and a musical rhythm, 
uh, it's there and it's embedded in this Olmsted aesthetic. And it's really quite extraordinary. I knew I know you yourself are a great appreciator of music. And I knew that that comparison metaphor would appeal to you. I love to be reminded of that because, I mean, I, I find architecture has a, a musical dimension to it. And now when I go to a park, I'll, I'll be more, more tuned into that. Lawrence Cotton is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Lawrence is a filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon, who celebrates the bicentennial of the man called the father of landscape architecture in a PBS documentary special, Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. Olmsted created some of the most beautiful parks, gardens, and public spaces we continue to enjoy today. You'll also find a list of ongoing events to commemorate the Olmsted Bicentennial at olmsted200.org. Learns this is so fun to, for me to be opened up to a, an appreciation of something I've I've enjoyed but never realized uh, there's more to, to more to know about it so I can enjoy it better. Uh, landscape architecture and how it contributes to our public spaces. I'm going to stream your your uh, PBS special from 2014. Um, we can get it there at pbs.org and it's all about Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us. And if we could just wrap it up with uh, you, you know quite intimately so many of these parks. Just as a person who enjoys a park, what is a feature of a park designed by a brilliant man born 200 years ago this year that really works for you today? What's one feature that we should we can celebrate? I hate to keep going back to Central Park, too, because there's so many beautiful parks all over the country. By And remember, it's Olmsted Sr. as well as his two sons. And the Bicentennial is a commemoration of not just Sr.'s work, but that of his two sons. And let me just mention them by name. Mm -hmm. John Charles Olmsted, who was so influential in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere, and Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., who was also influential across the country. And by the way, I grew up at the University of Washington campus enjoying the work of Olmsted's son without even realizing it. The way that beautiful pond lines up with the landscaping in Mount Rainier, it's just like, that didn't happen accidentally. Correct. Now, that's also a more um, constructed space in the heart of the UW campus. But uh, And sometimes people are mystified. They can't believe that they were actually constructed out of, I want to say, next to nothing in the case of Prospect Park uh, and even to a lesser degree, uh, Central Park. They were very raw uh, landscapes and rather degraded land and mm-hmm. not always well tended to in mm-hmm. sort of a mishmash of all sorts of things. Now, unfortunately, there were also... Uh, human settlers in various aspects of Central Park, which unfortunately in the early days of that, before Olmsted came on the scene, were removed Mm -hmm. from the picture. And it's not unlike the story of some of our national parks with the Native Americans. And we don't have time to get into that. But uh, they are constructed parks. They look like natural places today for people who go into them. But there was an incredible amount of earth moving and construction activity, but also the design. It's as designed as the greatest buildings of the world, the intense detail of design and mm-hmm. thoughtfulness that went into actually creating that park is is something to behold by a self-taught Renaissance man. Well, thank you so much, Lawrence Cotton, for your passion for raising awareness and appreciation of the work of Frederick Law Olmsted as we appreciate and celebrate his 200th birthday. Thanks so much, Lawrence. It's a pleasure. A pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Historian Lawrence Cotton profiles the achievements of America's legendary landscape architect in the PBS documentary Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. Lawrence tells us about the similarities in Olmsted's park designs and the parks Walt Disney made in an extra to today's interview. You can hear that with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. 
Next, we turn to the Old World for a look at some of the charming places you might have overlooked in Eastern Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Žujo, ja sem Patina. Pišem se hiti, prihajam iz Bleda, iz Slovenije in potujem z Rikom Stilsem. A bi se nam radi prodružal? Ok, that was Slovenian for... Hello, I'm Tina Hiti, I come from Bleda, Slovenia. And I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Would you like to join me? Žujo, ja sem Patina Hiti in prihajam z Bleda, Slovenije. In potujem z Rick Stilsem. A bi se mi radi prodružal? I'm always surprised by how many people who consider themselves well-traveled in Europe have never ventured further east than Vienna. The mostly Slavic countries that we refer to as Eastern Europe offer a great variety of experiences and opportunities for travelers with just a little sense of adventure. And despite the horrors citizens of Ukraine are facing from the Russian military strikes, the rest of Eastern Europe has thankfully been spared any collateral damage so far, apart from welcoming in refugees from the war. There's a lot for American travelers to discover in countries like Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania, and in the Balkan countries. So I've invited my senior writer and Eastern European expert, Cameron Hewitt, to join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to look at some of the variety of experiences we can have there on this eastern frontier for travelers to Europe. Cameron, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rick. Today, I really want to celebrate the diversity of Eastern Europe. I mean, we could celebrate the diversity of Western Europe without hardly thinking about it. But in Eastern Europe, I like your help. What I'd like to do is just take a moment in each of these major countries in Eastern Europe, and I'll just let you ad-lib on what is an intimate little slice of that culture that we might find inspiring when it comes to venturing east. Are you ready? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. When I was in Slovenia, I think I was with you, you took me to up into the woods, into a little tiny village, and it was famous for beehives. And they've got this wonderful tradition of painting their beehives, the wooden panels on the beehives, with folk legends. And it's just a trip into the culture in a humble, quirky angle of painted beehives. And this farmer must have been the the latest in a long line of bee farmers in his town and in his family. And I'll never forget that experience. What's a slice of Slovenia that, that stuck with you? Well, my Slovenian memory is also in nature. Slovenia has beautiful mountains, and there's some really famous places you can go, but I have local friends who've directed me to a couple of -of out-of-the-way spots. One of them's a a valley called Logarska Dolina, which is only an hour and a half drive from the capital city. And I was driving there once um, with with a friend of mine, but you could do this on your own too. Um, And he he pulled up to this little hut in the middle of nowhere, this kind of mountain chalet almost. And he says, oh, the sign is out. They have one of my favorite foods. We should try this. And I said, okay, let's, let's do it. And uh, the owner brought out this crock of, it looked kind of like yogurt. My friend was like, oh, it's, it's like yogurt, except it had like a yellow film on top. He said, oh, it's delicious. And he started eating it. So I, I took a bite and I realized it was like yogurt with a very strong barnyard aftertaste. And I said, oh, this is very interesting. What is this? And, and he said, oh, it's kislo mleko. You take yogurt and you basically set it in the barn for a couple of weeks. So it really picks up all those flavors. And, I mean, he was just thrilled to share this with me. And uh, I have an ethic that I'm willing to eat anything once. Once. <laughs> and I, I haven't had more of the kislo mleko, but it was fun to have it. You know, as you were describing that, I couldn't help remembering going to a farmhouse after dinner, and they were all excited because the polka king was there. 
<laughs> and he was nice. the most famous guy in Slovenia. And it was all about polka. Slavko Ausinik, of course. That was that the guy? That's his name, yes. He's and the he, he's the Elvis of Slovenian polka. The Elvis of polka. And I, I just I had to just kinda of go, okay. Because polka, it's not it doesn't have a highbrow uh, appreciation where I come from. But in Slovenia it's a big deal. And he's a big deal. What's the Elvis's name again? Slavko Ausinik. Well, there you go. Okay. Hey, uh, speaking of music, I'll never, a highlight for me when I was in Warsaw in Poland was going to this wonderful, wonderful small guest house or hotel. And the man who ran it was passionate about classical music because this is the hometown of uh, Chopin. Mm-hmm. And they had a grand piano and they had a chandelier that somehow survived the war. And he would gather people together lovingly, 20 chairs in the salon. And I'm really romantic when it comes to salon music, before there was recorded music in the 1800s, when the average person would never have the opportunity to hear an orchestra. You know, they would listen to the, the visiting pianist, and they'd play Chopin. We gathered around, and we enjoyed Chopin in his birthplace, oh, wow. in a salon. And I was so thankful for that. And I, one of the reasons I want to go back to Poland and do a new TV show is because I want to capture that on film. <laughs> What's something you would want to share about Poland? You know, I'm fortunate because I have Polish ancestry. And so one year uh, I was over there doing some work and I took some time off and got some help going a couple hours east of Krakow, middle of nowhere, pig farming country. We actually tracked down some family roots. Uh, we went to some village churches. Huh. We, you know, glad-handed the priest and he pulled out some old paperwork and we actually saw the names of our ancestors handwritten in this in this Polish village church. And then we figured out that we actually have relatives in the next town over. Um, so we drove over and knocked on the door and we met actually my grandfather's first cousin and his family. Um, that must have been an incredible exciting. experience. It's probably as incredible for them as for you, for yes. them to meet a long lost relative. And I find a lot of Americans have Slavic ancestry and a lot of people who are interested in Eastern Europe, it's because they have Czech oh, roots yeah. or Polish roots. And, and so hey, I, I'm here to tell you, you can partner up with a local guide and you can track those people down. And if you have that heritage, take advantage of it. Cameron Hewitt is my senior writer and content manager at Rick Steves Europe. We're going over a few of our favorite memories from traveling in the countries of Eastern Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In Cameron's book, The Temporary European, he includes tales from his visits to Krakow in Poland, Croatia's Dalmatian coast, touring the mountains of Slovenia, trying the public thermal baths in Budapest, and helping me tackle the bureaucracy of Romania as we tried to film a TV show there. We also have a link to Cameron's travel blog in the notes for this week's show. You'll find that at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I was um, in Bulgaria, and... We were just driving around in a town I had never heard of before, and we happened to hit it on the annual day of celebration for the Cyrillic alphabet. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bulgaria, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of a publicity campaign from the government to let young people know that, hey, this is not a curse. This is a blessing. You, you write with the Cyrillic alphabet, not the alphabet that they use in Germany and Italy. And it was just so charming. Everybody was out. The kids were uh, celebrating their language and their script. It just reminded me... There's places like Bulgaria that we don't appreciate. Absolutely. My memory from Bulgaria is once, again, a lot of mine involve having a local friend to help you out. And I think anyone can either make friends or hire a guide to do this for you. But I had a local friend in Bulgaria who took me to a a village, small town village wedding. Very traditional. Um, She picked me up at the airport and she says, oh, I just found out there's some, you know, a friend of a friend has a relative getting married the next village over. And so we went to this little town in the middle of nowhere. And it was basically an all day wedding feast 
there was like a reception where they danced and then they all kind of paraded through town and then they had this big feast with these giant cauldrons of, of soup. And it was just an amazing experience. I was the only non-Bulgarian person there and I just felt so uh, privileged to be able to experience that. Cameron, the way you described that reminded me of the same thing that happened to me in Thailand. Mm. Oh, wow. And the point is, there's weddings all over the world, but you got to be ready to turn on a dime when you see a, a local festival like that. And, you know, here we think about weddings having, like, very specific guest lists, but in a lot of places it's a community affair. So it was, right. I didn't feel like I was unwelcome or I was crashing the party. Not at all. The more the merrier. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt, and he's the author of The Temporary European, and we're talking about intimate little glimpses to celebrate the diversity of cultures that you'll experience when you travel through Eastern Europe. Cameron, when we think about Eastern Europe, I really, when I drive through Croatia, and there's like four or five substantial countries that came out of Yugoslavia when it fell apart a generation ago, when I drive through Croatia, it's always lambs on spits. You know, you drive, <laughs> yeah. you drive on the uh, road trip in the United States and it's hamburger joints. <laughs> right. But right. in, in yep. Croatia, I think they've got their lambs on spits roadside to show off that we've got a, a lamb that it's, it's talk about hot off the bone or whatever. It's, it just sloths off the bone and it's so tender. It's so local. It's so cheap. It's just a beautiful thing. And I love lambs on spits, and that's part of my Croatian experience. What's a Croatian experience for you? You know, uh, I love going to Dubrovnik, which is sort of the touristic darling of Croatia, and and I love all the great sights and the, and the viewpoints and everything there, but what I really love to do is every morning I like to go sit down on the main drag, and there's a little cafe where locals gather to just do some people watching, and, uh-huh. and it's, it's nice to be out because Dubrovnik can be extremely crowded in the middle of the day. I love to be there, you know, 8 in the morning, not 10 in the morning, the main street is pretty empty. There's, you know, people bringing in deliveries and stuff. Um, and you just kind of have a nice quiet moment before the crowds descend and just take it all in. Quiet moments before the crowds. When you're talking about that, I was thinking of uh, we were in Venice for uh, 12 days shooting two shows in a row. And I was separated from the crew because of hotel accommodation limits. And uh, every morning I walked 10, 15 minutes across town to meet the crew for breakfast. And it gave me that walk through Venice before mm. any of the tourists were up. Mm-hmm. Tourists have banker's hours. You yes, know? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have banker's hours, you're going to have some bonuses. We are continuing our blitz through Eastern Europe to celebrate little cultural differences. When I was in Romania, there's something very crude about their communist heritage. They had the most miserable dictator, Ceausescu, mm-hmm. and he built the most disgusting this insanely big palace. In some measures, it's the biggest building in Europe. I think I've heard that, yeah, the biggest building in Europe. This palace. Yeah. And at the same time, they were the poorest people in Europe. Mm-hmm. And to this day, they, the Ceausescu's long gone, communism's long gone, but they're stuck with this giant building and they're trying to figure out how do we fill it with something that can be a poetic ending, like can we do something to have a little entrepreneurial and cultural festival within this building that could house a whole city. Uh, and I remember the the chaos and the frustration of trying to get permission to film there because <laughs> yes. the whole society is riddled with corruption and ridiculous bureaucracy. And that was part of my Romanian experience. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is part of your Romanian experience? Yeah, mine's a little more romantic. Um, in Transylvania, um, I was traveling with my dad, actually. The first time I ever went to Romania, he was curious to tag along. And um, Romania has a very complicated cultural history, but there were a lot of German settlers who lived in in Romania. So there's still these villages all over Transylvania Mm. in in the middle of Romania where they have these old village churches. And the churches had to be fortified because they were basically had to double as castles. So from the outside, it looks like a castle. And then you walk inside. And not only is it a church inside, but it feels like a time capsule to like you know, 16th or 17th century Germany because everything is still in German. A lot of the Germans uh, left 
Transylvania historically, but they've kind of kept these little type, sort of time capsules alive. And yeah. so my dad and I both speak German, and my dad lived in Switzerland and Germany for a while. And so to step, you're in the middle of the wilds of Romania, and you walk up to this castle, and you step inside, and you're in this little German church. It's it a Lutheran amazing. church. Yes, exactly. It's got to be a Lutheran church. When I first went to Romania, it, I was uh, 19 years old, and this would have been, uh, well, back in the 70s. And <laughs> And I was blown away because there was more traditional German culture in Romania. Yeah, right. Because of these little Germanic yeah. enclaves. And they had to fight to keep their culture alive. And mm-hmm. it's just why they, they probably eat more, more lutefisk in Minnesota than they do in Norway these days. Yeah, you know? no, that's a good point. Yeah. You know? So they, they fought to keep their heritage alive. And I went into one of those fortified churches. And at my church, you know, we have to badger people to be on the volunteer lifts to serve coffee after church, you know. And the service that those Lutherans did was they had to sign up to to live in the fortified wall, and they would defend that flank yeah, right. when they were yeah. under attack by the Slavs that surrounded them. Yeah. They were literally fortified churches. You're right about it being an enclave. I remember there was even a um, a hymnal in the pew, and we opened the hymnal, and it was in German. It's in German. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, um, and it's just old German. Yeah, old, it's, yes. It is, it's like it's a time a capsule. time warp German. Yes. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but we got one last stop, Czech Republic. And when I go to the Czech Republic, I just remember on my first visits, before I knew how strong the beer was, it's the best beer. And when you sit down at a table for lunch, you get served water in the United States. There, you get served beer. <laughs> and if you drink half of it, they'll fill it up. And they'll keep bringing you more beer unless you put your coaster on top of the beer, saying, enough, I've, I've had it. And the beer is so strong. And for a couple of visits, I found myself worthless in the afternoon. I, I <laughs> invented a term. It was called check knees. There you go. <laughs> I was traveling on check knees, which means after a couple of beers. You know, and for me, in Prague, something like 90% of people who visit the entire country of Czech Republic only go to Prague. And I had a a wonderful road trip once where I drove south and in the southern part of Bohemia, which is the western half of Czech Republic. There's all these beautiful small towns that are very historic. They have these gorgeous main squares with really colorful townhouses. There's one called uh, Telch. There's one called uh, Trebon. There's one called Slavonica. You know, these are places that most American travelers, even frankly, a lot of European travelers have never heard of. But each one, it just was fun to explore these places. And each yeah. one kind of had their claims to fame and the things they were proud of. But um, you really felt like you were in small town yeah. Czech Republic with no tourists. I love that challenge of going to a country that's dominated by its big popular city, Amsterdam, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the Netherlands or Edinburgh in Scotland or Prague in Czech Republic and making yourself do a big part of your trip without going into that city or, or beyond that city. Absolutely. Cameron, that's a pretty good swing through Eastern Europe. I'm, I'm sure there's a few countries we missed, but it's a, it's a good way to celebrate the diversity that we can find and the challenge that we should all have in our own travels and our own travel planning is to sleuth out these examples where we can celebrate the distinct cultures of Europe. And, of course, you do that quite vividly, quite quite inspirationally in your book, The Temporary European. Cameron Hewitt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Rick. After this, I'm, I'm ready to get going. Let's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's go. get on the plane. Let's, let's go to Eastern Europe for sure. Thanks, Cameron. Thank you. Sometimes the rough edges in a developing country just provide us with more to write home about. Here is an Eastern European memory I included in my book For the Love of Europe. It's from the time I stayed at a newly opened resort hotel on the scenic Bay of Kotor in the challenging Balkan country of Montenegro. After leaving Mostar, 
I drove south to yet another new nation that emerged newly independent from the ashes of Yugoslavia, Montenegro. During my travels through this region, my punch-drunk passport has been stamped and stamped and stamped again. While the unification of Europe has made most border crossings feel archaic, here the breakup of Yugoslavia has kept them in vogue. Every time the country splintered, another border was drawn. The poorer the country, it seems, the more ornate the border formalities. By European standards, Montenegro is about as poor as it gets. They don't even have their own currency. With just 600,000 people, they decided, heck, let's just use euros. For me, Montenegro, whose name means Black Mountain, has always evoked the fratricidal chaos of a bygone age. I think of a time when fathers in the Balkans, in anticipation of future sectarian struggles, taught their sons that your neighbor's neighbor is your friend. Back then, for generation after generation, so-and-so-ovich was pounding on so-and-so-ovich, so a secure mountain stronghold like Montenegro was worth all that misery. A recent visit showed me that this image is now dated. The country's on an upward trajectory. Many expect to see Montenegro emerge as a sunny new hotspot on the Adriatic coastline. International investors, mostly from Russia and Saudi Arabia, are pouring money into what they hope will become their very own Riviera. Unfortunately, when rich people paste a glitzy facade under the crumbling infrastructure of a poor country that isn't quite ready for it, you get a lot of pizzazz with no substance. I stayed at a supposedly designer hotel that, at first glance, felt so elite and exclusive that I expected to see Idi Amin poolside. But the hotel, opened just a month, was a comedy of horrible design. I felt like I was their first guest ever. My bathroom was far bigger than many European hotel rooms, but the toilet was jammed in the corner. I had to tuck up my knees to sit on it. A big hot tub for two dominated the bathroom, but there wasn't enough hot water available to fill it. I doubt it'll ever be used, except as something to ponder as you sit all scrunched up on the toilet. A huge thunderstorm hit with enough fury to keep the automatic glass doors opening and closing on their own. Nothing drained. A torrent cascaded down the stairs and through the front door. The rain also brought a backed-up sewage smell that drove me out of my room. And just as I sat down for a cup of coffee in the lounge, the lights went out. Peering past the candelabra on my table, the overwhelmed receptionist explained with a shrug, When it rains, there is no electricity. The man who ran the place just looked at me and said, Cows. I think he meant chaos. Eventually the rain stopped, the clouds parted, and I went out to explore the wonders of Montenegro. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Website uploads are managed by Andrew Wakeley. Jerry Frank wrote and performed our theme music. Thanks to Robert Frazier at Feature Story News in Washington for studio help this week. You can find out more about Rick's books and read what he's been thinking about lately in his blog entries at ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with another travel with Rick Steves. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at 
ricksteves.com.